0: Hey, AJ, how you doing? Good. How are you? Great, man. What do you think about the fact that uh, Taylor Swift is finally
1: putting Travis Kelsey on the map? You know, for such a scrappy young and unknown football player, it's kind of nice to uh, that he gets a little bit of attention. I mean, it's about time. That's right. Uh, do you do you think that their relationship is,
0: is for real or do you think that this is just an op by the nfl to try to rehabilitate their relationship with the female viewership and younger viewership that they've alienated through their handling of various domestic violence scandals over the years
1: i think that's ascribing a level of organization and strategy to use an old word um that maybe the nfl is incapable of i i don't know i think maybe they just like each other
0: Okay, Fair enough. In the name
1: of responsible journalism,
0: I should stop uh, promoting conspiracy theories on this podcast. Uh, but speaking of uh, scrappy folks out there in the world, we'll be talking today about an operation targeting NATO. And also we've got an interview coming up with former GOP congressman and current presidential candidate Will Hurd. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity.
2: An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker.
1: She's a super hacker. Stay
2: alert. Stay safe. Stay safe.
0: This is Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm your host, Elias Grohl. I'm joined today by reporter AJ Vicente. Hey, AJ. Hey, Elias. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. So you've been reporting this week on an operation targeting NATO and uh, some documents from the Defense Alliance that have leaked online. What's the latest there?
1: So over the weekend, a hacking group, a crew calling themselves Sec. Posted what they said was a link to about 3,000 NATO documents, um, roughly nine gigabytes of data targeting various NATO portals. Uh, when I asked NATO about it, they a NATO official told me that they were actively addressing incidents affecting some unclassified NATO websites. And that additional cybersecurity measures have been put in place, but there were no there was no impact on NATO missions operations or military deployments. Okay.
0: So this is the second time in the last three months that this group has hit NATO and stolen documents and leaked them online. Kind of step back a bit and tell us a bit about the biggest bigger picture here about what this group, siege sec, is claiming they're doing against NATO.
1: So we actually have spoken with a representative of this group in the past. I mean, this is a, if we're zooming out, this is a group that claims to be a politically motivated cyber crime, you know, burn it all down type of entity. Uh, they post documents online. Uh, they post uh, funny memes. They call themselves gay furry hackers. Um, they, Furries typically- as
0: in the uh, sexual preference for... People in animal costumes?
1: Yes. Okay, great. Um, And they, you know, they're typically not sort of, you know, saying, send us money and we'll remove your files from the internet type of thing. This is a group that's really all about burning it down. Um, They had told me in the past that they were not, they they consider themselves more black hat than hacktivists, and they really just go after whoever Um, and money is not their main goal, they had said at the time. And you know, the, the quote was, most of the time, we just want to have fun and destroy stuff. And you can kind of see that in their uh, approach. Um, they, they emerged in on Telegram, at least in April of 2022. So about a, a year and a half now, they've been going and really their targets are all over the map, um, all over the world. And it's just corporate documents, databases, uh, personally identifiable information, um on many many people uh they've been there's been some research that's accused them once of being a russian operation but they've gone after russian targets too and they take great exception to be calling being called russian so you know they're really kind of all over the place yeah they're they're an interesting group they've also
0: they have hit targets in the united states right and this the the operations that they've carried out in the united states have been some of their more politically motivated, uh, operations, I would say, uh,
1: tell us a bit about
0: their operations in the U S.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. So that's, they attacked a series of state websites, uh, in Kentucky and Arkansas last summer, uh, over those states, legislative efforts to limit access to abortion. Um, they've and gender also. gender affirming
0: healthcare, I think, right? And
1: gender affirming healthcare. Exactly. Yeah. So And they've also, uh, earlier this summer, they went after satellite receivers and industrial control systems, and then particularly in states that were banning gender-affirming care, they said. So whether that was a situation where the targets or open targets happened to line up in states where the politics didn't sort of match their worldview, or if they sought out targets in those states because of wanting to punish those states, we don't really know. Um, but nevertheless, they tie their messaging to the political sort of context quite overtly. Um, and again, in those situations, they're not asking for money. They're not doing extortion, at least publicly. Uh, they're just sort of messing with targets and and trying to burn them down. Yeah. So they, you know, what's interesting about them too is that they are kind of an alliance, or at least have some connections to other groups who are more overtly sort of financially motivated, engaging activities such as extortion or, you know, selling access to compromised email accounts, those sorts of things. That is much more traditional cybercrime, uh, financially motivated cybercrime, I should say. So it, it's, they kind of fit into an interesting space. And, It's, you know, time will tell, right? But uh, there are certainly, we don't report on everything they do because that could be a full-time beat. They're very, they're quite prolific. And that sort of circle of the cybercrime ecosystem is you could report on multiple data breaches every day. Yeah. But in this case, they've now hit NATO twice. And twice NATO has sort of confirmed that something happened and they're looking into it. So it's it's worth paying attention to.
0: Yeah, they're an they're an interesting group for us to cover, right? Because for a lot of these cybercrime groups or politically motivated hacking groups, the reason why they carry out operations in the first place is to gain attention. So our for us in the media who cover this world, you know, we want to try to walk that fine line of covering breaches that are newsworthy while at the same time not trying to play into the hands of these um, hacking groups that are trying to seek attention. But I think as we said in our our reporters meeting yesterday,
1: uh, hack NATO and you get an article. Well, and you know, what's what's troubling about the hacks, the repeated hacks on NATO is that, so first of all, this is the second time they've come back and done this. And so the first attack was a bit more, uh, narrow on one of the portals. And now they've expanded that out to multiple NATO portals. NATO insists these are unclassified systems. Nevertheless, I don't think they want this material out there. Um, so what is NATO doing at a, at a crucially sort of vital time for NATO? Right. Uh, yeah. Geopolitically speaking, there's a there's a war going on, a literal war going on. And NATO is quite front and center in that uh, in a support role. What are they doing to secure their systems at this critical time? Um, And also, you know, they are being as NATO points out, they've been frequently targeted in cyber attacks um, and other you know, hack and leak activity. And there are more overtly pro-Russian groups that have targeted NATO and leaked documents and posted things uh, in a nakedly pro-Russian sort of approach so there's a lot going on there and it's worth paying attention to who's going after them and for what reasons so uh, you know but at the same time like you said we don't want to sort of be the play the role of being a, a hacking crew's pr wing so we, we try to balance those things
0: no exactly but you know I, I think in the case of nato you know if you you hack nato and you leak documents online that's um that's news right and but i think it's worth noting the types of nato systems that these guys are or gals are breaching you know they're they're information sharing portals right it's nato's online learning platform it's nato's platform for sharing logistics information and you know these are nato systems that are yeah they're unclassified They're also really important for what NATO is doing right now and the work that they're doing in trying to coordinate assistance to Ukraine post-Russian invasion, right? And in order to coordinate and share information, you need publicly or semi-publicly accessible portals, right? Which by their very nature are also going to be vulnerable to these types of attacks. So the operations that we see groups like SiegeSec carrying out are... um, really just hitting a, a seam, it seems like to me, of exploiting what NATO is needs to do as part of its, its work, but also going after the vulnerabilities that are quite naturally created almost by building information sharing platforms that need to be accessible to a lot of people.
1: You know, it's interesting, if, and if we're talking about NATO in particular, there's a there's a domestic political context in every NATO country where there are certain people who don't want their government or their tax dollars or what have you involved in NATO. And so if you're anti NATO, you might seek to, you know, further drive wedges in those uh, between those groups and inflame tensions when it comes to the question of participating in NATO. So, you know, to be clear, I'm not saying that's siege sex goal. But at the same time, there, it's it's hard to sort of continue momentum and trust when you uh, are repeatedly having your systems exposed in this way, and so, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces when it comes to NATO and cybersecurity, and uh, it's definitely worth something, worth our time to pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely, and.
0: I think the attacks like this by SiegeSec, I think, are probably exhibit A to this idea that they would be a Russian group, which is something that obvious that has not been proven. But it's indicative of the fact. Or I I think a group like SiegeSec are very representative of, of a particular subset of the cyber criminal world where. We really know very little about these guys but based on the attacks that they've carried out the operations that they've carried out it becomes very easy to jump to these conclusions about who these folks are and why they're carrying them out and it's you know you can you can create a circumstantial case that this is a russian operation very very easily but then there's a whole other set of potential explanations at play here that could also be motivating uh, these types of operations
1: well yeah. I mean, the last thing I'll say is that the last time they hit NATO, I mean, I think they're fully aware of the context where which in which these attacks will be viewed. And the last time they hit NATO, they posted a message sort of with the the leaked materials saying it had nothing to do with the war between Russia and Ukraine. And it was actually retaliation retaliation against the countries of NATO for their attack on human rights. Mm. Um, you know yeah take that with a grain of salt exactly you could you could say that about any you know any sort of attacker will find justification for going after any government wherever so but at the same time they're very aware of the the context in which they're operating and and how it's going to be viewed so we'll have to see how this plays out all right well
0: AJ thank you for this trip into the cyber criminal underworld love to work in this space with you it's a pleasure every day Coming up next on Safe Mode, we've got an interview with former Congressman Will Hurd, who's now a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. That's coming up next on Safe Mode. I'm joined today by Will Hurd, the former congressman from Texas and a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. Before he arrived on Capitol Hill, where he was an influential voice on cybersecurity issues, Congressman Hurd served as a CIA operations officer. And he has said it was the experience of briefing members of Congress while serving in the agency that convinced him to run for office. Unaware of the basic facts of the war on terror, the visiting delegations that he briefed convinced Heard that he could do a better job of it himself. Once in Congress, he staked out a defiantly moderate position in Washington, frequently clashing with President Donald Trump and helping to pass a series of technology modernization bills. Congressman Will Hurd, welcome to Safe mode.
2: Hey, thank you. I, I like that. defiantly moderate. I'm gonna start I'm gonna start using that,
0: please. Uh, just uh, make sure to give me credit. There we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we're speaking on the Tuesday ahead of Wednesday's presidential Republican debate or re- ahead of Wednesday's Republican presidential debate, uh, which I'm sorry to say you haven't qualified to be on the stage for. Um, Donald Trump continues to lead in the polls and continues to refuse to participate in the debates. For a long shot candidate as yourself, and I hope you don't mind me calling you that, what are you trying to achieve by staying in the race at this point?
2: Well, well, look, we were working hard uh, up to last night. You know, what was shocking is the lack of polls that that came out over the last you know four or five days. Um, we expected many others, and the RNC was not very clear on what the polling was going to be. Uh, my, I, I've always said that we were going to take one step at a time. Um, As long as we have the resources to continue, um, we'll we'll continue. And part of this is about bringing a message to um, that defiantly moderate message. right? The Republican Party needs someone who's not afraid of Donald Trump, but is also going to articulate um, the issues of the future and have some experience in that. Whether it's border security, where I have more time on the border than everybody in this race combined, to include Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, um, to artificial intelligence, which is going to upend every single industry. Um, you know, I have more experience in, in that topic than, again, all of these other candidates combined. And so um, the, the question is not about whether the, the message is resonating. The question is about, do I have the resources to increase my microphone or megaphone? OK,
0: so a few days after you retired from Congress, uh, Trump loyalists stormed the Capitol mm-hmm. and watching the events of January 6th. You've written felt like a sequel to, to 9-11. And to make sure that something like January 6th doesn't happen again, you've written, and I quote, the Republican Party must drive out those who continue to push misinformation, disinformation, and s- subscribe to crackpot theories like QAnon. I think the framing around misinformation and disinformation here is interesting. It's one that the Republican Party uh, has a lot of problems with, right? And so I'm curious what in your mind needs to be done to, to combat what you describe as this problem, misinformation.
2: Well it starts with elected officials who know better not pro- propagating these things right the you know oftentimes i say that you know my issue is not with the the true believers that actually think this stuff is true it's with the people that know it's not true and and support it and let's take january 6 as an example i i think the number like that did not certify the election after the um, after the events of January 6th, um, it was like it was like 130, maybe it was 150. It was it was a large number. And all of those obviously were, were Republicans. And I can tell you of those over 100 people, probably only 20 actually believed that there was some kind of, you know, problem with the the security of the election. The rest were just going along in order to, um, in order to prevent having this issue come up in, in the primary debate. Right. So, so that it, it starts with that, right. Um, you know, uh, the misinformation, disinformation from our adversaries abroad is a very different issue than, um, you know, straight up lies and craziness uh, from a domestic audience. Right. You know, uh, lying is not against the law. Um, and it's and it's and a lot of times lying is protected speech. Um, but when it comes to our adversaries, we know how to deal with that um, because we understand and know the the mechanisms or the infrastructure that our adversaries are using in order to propagate those messages. So being able to deal with that issue um is a little bit easier but now what we're seeing it's not um you know you're seeing elected officials and 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 uh, media personalities literally use the talking points from the Kremlin and so so it's like you know how do you how do you fight that other than educating people about you know issues and and what's really what's really going on i mean
0: many members of your party frame the the misinformation problem around one of the platforms having too much power to moderate, uh, to, to censor speech, essentially, right? And the approach of the Biden administration has been to go to these platforms, try to inform them about what they consider to be misinformation on the platforms. There's a legal battle playing out right now about whether they have the right to carry out those types of, of communications. W- what do you think about the relationship between the government and the platforms and trying to police online speech, for lack of a better term?
2: So, so the the government saying, "Hey, we think this information is wrong," you know. FYI, um, that's one thing. Government telling someone, directing them to take something down is different. The way the laws work now, if if somebody is in violation of the 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 um, the consumer contract with the platform, and the platform talks about what a, a user behavior is allowed and not allowed, then those are the terms by which they can deplatform and take people off. Right? It's very simple. I've gotten to the point where I think the platforms uh, should not have been carved out of Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act. Um, mm-hmm. They should have the same um, rules and regulations that a uh, radio, television, uh, the you know the New York Times or the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal has to adhere to. Now that's a significant. That would require a significant change in, in law and legislation. But what's fascinating is the far left and the far right um, are actually kind of an agreement on this issue for completely different reasons. Um, but but having, you know, I think these social media platforms um, should be held to the same standard as traditional media. And I think that was a mistake. Um when that decision was made long ago, look, we can make the argument. And that's why one of the things in new technologies like AI, I say AI needs to follow the law. Let's not carve it out of anything um, because we've seen how we've made that mistake. It's not going to impact innovation. Um, but but again, um, I think it's it's the platforms as the law extends now, make it very clear um, what the user agreement is and. Um, adhere to the standards that they've articulated. Um, And that should, that that should, you know, be the same for um, anybody, regardless of what their political, their political leanings are.
0: When you look ahead in 2024, and we get closer to November, how do you think platforms should be addressing the misinformation problem? You think you think Donald Trump has, has the right to be back on the big social networks talking about election fraud?
2: Um, well, look, if, if, if I, I don't think you should be talking about election fraud, but, but guess what? Um, um, uh, yesterday when he was in South Carolina, several cable networks, um, were showing his speech when he was talking about how he didn't lose the election, right? And, and so, so, you know, this is a straight up lies, right? Like we can use fancy terms like misinformation and disinformation, um, but, you know, a political, you know, is that considered political speech because it's coming from a politician? Um, look, I, I just think everybody needs to continue to say, hey, Donald Trump lost. You know, if you would add up in Michigan, what were the threes, the three, the three um, states, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. If you would add up all the votes, the Republican nominee for Congress got in those states. And if Donald Trump would have gotten that, he would have won. Right. He he underperformed with Republicans, and that's why he lost. And so we just got to continue. I think people got to continue to fact check him in real time that all these things were lies. Right. And and that's why the case um, in Georgia, his 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 indictment in Georgia um, is important. Um, I think we learned from the January 6th committee um, about, you know, uh, the, the realities of the ground. Um, so, so yeah, I, look, you know, is that a violation of their user agreements? You know, um, I, I don't know the answer to that, but, but guess what? Uh, the problem is not just the social platforms. Um, it's also traditional media and print media as well, too, that are letting Donald Trump propagate that lie. Mm.
0: So, you know, in, in Washington today, there's, I think a lot of anxiety around, not trying to repeat the mistakes of the past around the regulation of social media platforms. There's the sense that we allowed social media platforms to change our society, our politics, and that horse had bolted from the barn by the time Congress got around to even thinking about trying to do something about the problem. And so there's now this sense that on AI and these new dominant firms that There's this need to act very quickly. Right. Uh, Before you launched this campaign, you were on the board of OpenAI Mm -hmm. and you joined that board in May of 2021 before stepping down to launch this campaign. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit what you learned from that experience of being on the board.
2: Sure. And, and and I would also add I've been on advisory board for Palantir as well, too. Right. And, you know, their their use of artificial intelligence and, and as a company that I've known for a really long time. H- here's what I learned. Um, I thought I understood technology when I was in Congress right now. I always joke, be like the bar was really low. Uh, yeah. So I I look like a genius compared to everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 I, I thought I had an understanding. Um i also but but being in the private sector the last couple of years and being in investment banking and seeing companies that are coming forward uh looking for for resources and funding where you get to look under the hood um you know uh, we're not as far in advance as we always think we are right and and so it was so so i've learned the reality the the other thing I learned about AI specifically with open AI it's a small company small organization to do something that changed the world and when we introduced chat gpt on november 30th it was a super low key re- release and part of it is because we're like oh this is not that interesting because we have we're working on way more interesting things right and then the the world blew up um and so so what what i have learned is that we're going to get to artificial general intelligence agi um, where you have an autonomous agent that can operate um, smart, be smarter than most people on most economically viable work. Um, there's a cu- there's a couple of, of things that are going to prevent that: um, compute power and actual power. And and so so we got to prepare for that eventuality. And um, the the reality is, um, people in this industry, whether it's it's OpenAI, Google, Anthropic. Facebook, um, they want people to clarify what needs to be done. And and so that's why I think it starts with something as simple as just codifying AI needs to follow the law. Meaning, okay. if you're a bank and you use AI and you and you misapply it, right, to where you it, it, it caused discrimination against your customers, the bank is responsible. But if the bank implements it, but the algorithm discriminates based on race then it's the algorithm's fault and the developer of the algorithm. Right. And and that's a pretty um that's a that's a, a liability issue uh that we've carved software out of. That's why we have a cybersecurity industry, to be honest. And mm-hmm. and so so um um so that's you know start with that. And then really powerful AI. And we can have a debate on what, what's powerful. You gotta make sure um it's 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 um uh, you got to have a third party do some permitting process, right? This weekend, I think you might have wrote about this um, this week. Uh, not this weekend. When was Black Hat? A couple of um, weeks ago. When you had a bunch of uh, Red Hat hackers or Black Hat, you know, White Hat, White Hat. I guess it'll be White Hat. Gray Hat, maybe. White Hat hackers. Maybe um, White um, Hat. Yeah, yeah it'll be White Hat. <laughs> um, hackers uh, going after all the large LLMs. Um, and show you know how they were able to take advantage of it, right? Like yeah. third-party testing, red team testing uh, should be a very uh, basic uh, thing that everybody is doing, and and you should be having something like NIST. Um, The national super standards and technology, um, be able to pop the hood and make sure that kind of stuff was being done. Um, So, so, um, so, yeah, that experience was was fantastic, Um, and 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 it just confirms for me something that the technological change we're going to see in the next thirty years is going to make the last thirty years look like we're monkeys playing in the dirt with sticks.
0: Yeah. Do you think the? How do you think about the jobs question? Do you do you think we're headed for kind of like an AI jobs apocalypse?
2: No, because look, AI is a tool, right and and so so if we're afraid of using the tool, I, look i I, I criticized um, I think it was the the city of New York, not the state of New York, that banned um, uh, AI tools in the classroom last 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 year and and guess what? they're dealing with an influx of immigrants in New York with languages that nobody knows. Hey, A.I. would have been able to help those teachers uh, work with those kids that had a narrow thing. And if you would have had a year to be working on this tool, you would be you'd be able to use it. So. So will there be some creative destruction? Absolutely. Um, But making sure like, it's going to start having us ask um, higher level questions. Right. I think you're going to see an influx of people needed in 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 biology and chemistry, like the fact that A.I. can help us map out um, proteins. And um, that's gonna sh- that's gonna see an increase in um the amount of, of drugs and vaccines that can help cure diseases and help us live longer. So so I don't think um look, um everybody thought the going in the grocery store and, and checking your own ba- your your own groceries was gonna be like it was gonna lose uh, people in, in, in the grocery store. Guess what? They're they're still trying to hire people, they don't have enough people to hire. And so um I I think um, net, it's going to be a net positive in- increase to our GDP and the ability to have jobs. But we got to make sure that people know how to use these tools, right? And we always talk about the digital divide, and usually you talk about the digital divide because of poor people or people that are in rural areas. <clears throat> now, and and the digital divide question was always access to a device, access to infrastructure, access to know-how. Um, that access to know-how is going to be even more important now, so people know how to use um a i and and their jobs because every job's gonna be impacted in the next two or three years when you look at the regulatory debate that's playing out
0: in Congress, is there anything that you think is missing from that debate? Is there anything in particular that you think like Congress really needs to act on
2: look so just move this move guys move right and 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 we can't allow so so Europe is about twelve to eighteen maybe twenty four months ahead of the United States when it comes to regulatory regimes around advanced technologies. Now, um, GDPR is the, the best example of that. And and I would say GDPR ended up having the impact of being a global standard because so many people were already operating, right? Um when it comes to AI, um the 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 markets are still, you know, there's still the US market is still hot, you know, still have opportunities there. So so Europe making a move may just prevent some people from developing in Europe, and you can potentially see a a an AI winter. Um, in in Europe, because people might operate, they may not want to operate there, right? Mm-hmm. Or just turn that turn those options off. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so Congress needs to move, and that's why I say it's real simple. Uh, move on something to 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 say, hey, AI has to follow the law. Move on this notion of permitting. Um, make sure there's a plan within the federal government to be using these tools. It shouldn't take months. For a veteran to schedule an appointment with the VA, it shouldn't take months for you to get your passport renewed. it should be done in minutes. Um, these are all things that AI can be helping with, and when it comes to the VA, they already have tools to to help provide better services to the veterans. We should be there should be a six month sprint within the federal government to say, hey, these tools are being used and then when it comes to the national security you know apparatus and military, hey guys, you can't take four years to bring on a new weapon or a new tool, right? But there has to be some improvement um, and the military needs to be ready to fight the war of the future, not the war of the past. Um, and, you know, it is, it is. look, if we can't find an F-35, you know, after a pilot uh, bails out, <laughs> you know, that's a little, yeah, that's a little concerning. Um, when you have the Chinese government putting satellites into space with a claw, um, you know, we need to be thinking through that. So, so anyway, so those are the things. Now, I, I will say this. Um uh some of the Senate hearings that I've I've seen on the topic of AI, I've been um I've been impressed um with some of the questions and 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 how it has been crazy. A lot of the questions have been around um IP, right? And yeah. and um and that makes sense, right? Look, creators should be benefited, right? Like I, I hope the resolution of the writer strike um, you know, I, I haven't looked into the details of the final, but like facial rights and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, making sure streamers and websites give people how know how many people are looking at your site. Um, you know, I I, I think we can get that issue right. Um, but these these broader questions um so that, so that we can continue to grow is important. Mm. So, when
0: you were in Congress, you were one of the leading voices on cybersecurity issues. You helped pass several key pieces of legislation including the technology Modernization Fund I'm mm-hmm. sure a favorite of among many of our listeners uh, how would you grade the work that the Biden administration is doing on Look,
2: this is what this is why I always appreciate skybascoop Scoop, right? Y'all were y'all were following y'all were following all we're this in, stuff. In I was uh, you're we're in the weeds. And I always I always appreciated that. Look look, I, I, I would say um look I, I I would give I would give the Biden administration high marks. When it comes to some of the like you know the countering some of the the um, ransomware and getting some of the money back right um, guess what cryptocurrency uh, is is not necessarily a, a anonymous right like you, you know how to find it you know where it is um and so some of those aggressive stances of, of retrieving some of the the cryptocurrency that was used in in these ransomwares I, I think is a is a positive effort to show. A level of aggressive offense. Um, I, I I would say that um, the issue of defending our digital infrastructure within the federal government has been clearly a a a, a, a bipartisan. It's it's a it's a nonpartisan issue, um, and we can go back to to President Obama um, and and Tony Scott when he was the federal CIO and had the ninety day experience of two factor authentication and things like that, and then and then Trump's team did a good job on on continuing this. And then um, I think Biden has the people that are involved in the cyber uh, operations are, 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 you know, Jen uh, Easterly to Chris English when he was still in. Um, These were these were top notch you know, great people. Um, one other, one other in- entity that I'm always proud of, um, Mike McCall is the father of, of CISA, right? He's the one that created it. Um, but I was proud to be a co-sponsor of that and help him pass that legislation um, because I think that has proven um, to be better than what most many, many people thought on um, working with the private sector on defending our digital infrastructure. Yeah, how do you think CISA is doing? Do you think it needs
0: a, a bit more authority, a bit more more teeth, maybe, to try to
2: get a bit more done? Look, so so when you look at when you look at, I, I would put kind of CISA in a in a in a almost like a OMB kind of. I look at them similar ways, where they have roles outside of their own agencies, right? And and so if you're going to make somebody responsible for helping defend digital infrastructure, then they have to have some responsibility for the actual infrastructure, right? Yeah. And and so so federal agencies are never going to give that up. Um, one of the reasons I always thought that CISOs need more authority, like if you're going to hold them accountable for stuff, then they need to be able to have the, f- the final responsibility in buying uh, whatever goods and services are needed to defend that infrastructure. CFOs get in the way, um, and that that struggle. And, and so you see that struggle play out um, with somebody like a CISA or OMB and trying to enforce, um, you know, best practices across the federal agencies. And and so I, I think there's probably some some responsibilities that um, making CISA be allowed to do things with, with a level of autonomy, um, you know, but those are probably very narrow um and i and you know, i can't say hey these are the top 3 that i would do you know i would do today yeah. but 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 sisa sisa has um i think um has has performed um in a in a uh, uh, they get good marks since it's since its since its creation
0: so i've been writing about cybersecurity issues kind of off and on for the past decade and one mm-hmm. of the things that strikes me about that time is how little has changed you know, computer systems still rife with vulnerabilities every day another breach what do you think needs to happen to shift that dynamic in a more fundamental way
2: well as long as people still use computers there's <laughs> going to be vulnerabilities mm-hmm. right so so 80% you know look um um fishing and spear phishing Leads to ma- the majority of the ransomware activities, right? We're gonna s- we're seeing an increase in ransomware activity um, because it's um it's a uh, the the cost per uh, um, per per strike is is pretty is pretty good, right? Um, and so as long as you have employees that are willing to click on things that they're not supposed to click on, right? You're gonna have problems as long as you have organizations that don't cons- that that don't consistently patch their infrastructure, you're going to have problems. And so so we can't even handle the 80 percent of the simple stuff. Right. Um, and so that's where CISOs, CISA, you know, b- being able to say, hey, there is CVE, whatever the vulnerability that's 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 that still hasn't been patched at Department of Education. They should be able to say, "Hey, we're going to patch this right now, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to me, those are the ones that are unacceptable. Now, how do you defend against the increase in zero-day attacks that we are seeing, right? And we're seeing an increase of zero-day attacks from entities associated with the Chinese government, and Chinese in- intelligence services, um, and those zero-day attacks are being targeted at the industrial, you know, the military industrial, con- uh, the, the defense industrial base, right? Um, and that requires us to make sure we start using the latest and greatest tools into our infrastructure in order to defend ourselves right um, <clears throat> and so so that cat and mouse game is only going to get harder as you're able to use a good AI versus bad AI or bad AI versus good AI in order to probe in order to probe defenses um, but until you have a software developed in a way that's purely impenetrable, which I don't think is possible. Um, or, you know, look, even the, look, the Chinese are trying to do this by developing entire infrastructures that they can kind of manage on their own. Um, that's, that's not the, that's not the option uh, as well. Um, so folks, you know, like my old friends at Fusion X and places like that are going to, are going to consistently have, have job security.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm sure your colleagues at the agency love poking at those indigenously developed Chinese systems.
2: Well, it's hard. Right. Like It's hard to get access to them. It's hard, you know, and and look, all of this, you know, one of the issues that I don't think gets enough attention. um, and, And I know there's there's elements within the federal government that's focusing on this is quantum resilient encryption. Um and and yes, NIST is working on the standards, but there's a lot of efforts that should be working that should be happening today to make sure once there's a standard that's accepted by the federal government that can be implemented immediately. Um and this is this this whole debate is going to is going to get turned upside down. And it's probably gonna happen. We're we're not gonna see it coming. Um it's gonna be sudden and it's gonna be overnight. And then you know the ability of of having quantum uh, communications that are literally impenetrable um, unless you're on the the, the user end. Uh, that's gonna change. Uh, that's gonna change how uh, how we conduct intelligence as well too. So <clears throat> these are all scary scenarios. And look we haven't even talked about synthetic biology right um we can program dna the way we program computer code and so the same kinds of things we're seeing in the in the in the cyber world those same principles and theories need to be applied in some of these other places right like i always tell people with ai yeah of course That should like like it's standard practice in a digital environment to have a third party come in every six or nine months and do a penetration testing or technical vulnerability assessment to determine your system. Why are we not doing that to all systems, right? Mm-hmm. And and especially at a time when the when the uh, with you know look, I feel like people don't talk about IoT anymore because it's it's ubiquitous. But the the surface area of attack has only has only increased, right? Um. So so anyways, um, that's that is that's the future that we have to prepare for. We need the right people in place. That can that can be ready for that, and that's the key. Uh, I don't think we have enough cap- capable folks um, in the federal government to do uh, what's necessary to protect us, but also uh, make sure that we're doing the right things around the world.
0: Stepping back a bit on the topic of China, I'm curious what you think the technological relationship between the U.S. and, and China should look at look like. We're in the middle of you know kind of a decoupling process, but you know the economies they they remain. Fundamentally intertwined sure. right I'm curious, you know, what you think that relationship should look like should Chinese sure. apps be allowed to operate in the US? Should there be a more fundamental severing of the two economies? What do you think that relationship should look like?
2: So so first we got to accept the fact that the Chinese government is trying to surpass the United States of America as the sole global superpower. That's not my opinion. That's what the Chinese have said about themselves since at least 2015 in English. Okay. And they're going to do that by being a leader in 14, 16 different technologies, AI, 5G, AI, quantum, hypersonics, synthetic biology, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so that's, to me, I, I think it's simple. Uh, one, it's about reciprocity. If the American company can't do it in China, the Chinese company shouldn't be allowed to do it here in America. Plain and simple. Right? And so it's up to the Chinese to decide that. Um, if amazon can't sell widgets in um Beijing, then Baidu shouldn't be able to sell um their their products in in washington d c right um so that but then too, we need to make sure that we have allies that can help us administer consequences to the Chinese when they violate international norms, laws, and rules so when when the Chinese hacked the State Department. And Treasury to figure out what Blinken and Secretary Yellen were going to do when they came to, to Beijing. What was the response? I don't think there was any response. And and, and, and and historically, in the intel world, what would happen if that if those were if those were actual agents stealing physical documents? You know, there would have been a PNG. You know, one of the, the a diplomat would have been kicked out of the country, and then China would have responded. Right? Okay, um, tit for tat. But what if everybody in Europe joined us in kicking out and sending, you know, Chinese diplomats home? That would have a bigger impact on 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 the Chinese government and and be better consequences um, than if we just doing it alone. So so the problem that we have with dealing with with China, that's four times our size, um, we need to make sure we have a posse, and I don't think we're doing enough. Um, to work with our allies and and again, look at Latin America, look at the fact that the Chinese government is increasing its its military and intelligence footprint in Cuba. Um, the reason they 're doing that is because everybody in the in Latin America really doesn 't care um, about u s policy towards Cuba and it doesn 't care about what the u s is saying. Um, these are broader issues that are going to um, if we don 't correct. Um, it's going to make us lose this war with the Chinese with the Chinese government, which is and I was like, yes, China is not 10 feet tall. Um, and and they uh, they're not. Right. And it was like, oh, China has a has a the economy is sometimes weak. They have an aging population. Uh, they have a debt problem. Yeah, Yeah. All those things. But we have those same freaking problems, right? So, um, so, so winning this new cold war, it, uh, it, uh, the United States winning this new cold war is not a fait accompli, and it, t- and it requires effort. And this is one of the reasons why I've gotten in this race um, because I don't think this is this is a decision. This is going to come down to the next couple of years. Um, I think you know no later than twenty twenty seven, um, and we got to get this right.
0: Mm. I think that's a great note to end on. Will Heard, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Always a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.